Hi, this is Courtney Drake McDonough, owner and managing editor of RealFoodTraveler.com, a culinary travel digital magazine. And welcome back to another Real Food podcast. Today I am with Judy Feldman, who is with the Organic Farm School. Um, in the Pacific Northwest, and she has a really amazing program that I learned about and wanted to share that information with our listeners and readers. So, Judy, I'm just going to let you start in and tell everybody your title and you know, a little bit more about uh, the company. Sounds great. Um, again, my name is Judy Feldman, and I'm the executive director of a nonprofit training program for new farmers. And... Just to give you a little context, today I'm engaging in this podcast from the beach because it's just too noisy at the farm. Students often come in and out of the office. So if you hear traffic going by, it's because I'm out in the parking lot. And if you hear (laughs) seagulls, it's because the water's on the other side. (laughs) Well, I I think that sounds wonderful. I envy you being at the beach today, even with a garbage (laughs) truck going by. So how long has the business been in existence? Um, This is a little bit of a trick question, but um, let me get through it as quickly as I can. The school itself has been around for almost 10 years now. That said, it was initially housed within three other organizations outside of the current nonprofit. And then once it was embraced by the nonprofit, that nonprofit was charged with doing much more than running the organic farm school. So we've had a, a varied background. If someone were to ask me the short answer to that question, it's that we're about to graduate our ninth class of students in our 10th year as a farmer training program. Okay. Um, and you've touched on this a little bit already, but explain what you do. What, what are the services that you provide and to whom? Um, the services are actually far-reaching. Specifically, we're focused on training new farmers to develop and manage small farms that are focused not only on food production, but meeting ecological, economic, and social sustainability goals. Um, To do all this, we work primarily with people who are between the ages of 20 and 40 who are really interested in becoming active, working farmers. And we try to provide them a really good foundation, not only in how do you grow a plant that makes food, but how do you develop seed? How do you create a strong business? How do you create a marketing plan? How do you take care of your land and your equipment? So it's it's a pretty broad-based program. And so how do people find out about you to become part of the program? Even in this age of technology, Word of mouth is our primary means of getting the word out, Um, but then we also rely heavily on podcasts such as this one and blog posts and social media and other electronic means of distributing information. So would you say that what you told me before is your mission, or do you have a a separate sort of mission statement for the organization? That's pretty clearly our mission. that we're training new farmers. Um, What we're trying to actually do, though, thank you for the clarifying question, is we're trying to cast a light on the fact that there is not only a path, but there are many paths to take people from thinking about farming to learning about farming to actually owning and managing a farm. And when you're talking about a farm, is there a qualifier because yeah, I, I don't know this, the answer to this. So is, is there a qualifier in terms of acreage or something else that makes it, 
you know, more than a garden and, and truly, <laughs> truly into um, technically being a farmer? I love this question. Um, what we specifically as the Organic Farm School are offering is the training, the foundation building required for a production farm, a farm that uses organic standards, which we can talk a little bit about, um, but that is growing at a scale that has meaning in the community level, not the commodity level. So we're not trying to train people to take on 5,000-acre farms. On the flip side, we're also... Um, we love small backyard gardens. We love permaculture. We love homesteading. But that's not what we teach. We're teaching people how to actually come up with a crop plan that is intended to take seed, put it in the ground, and then service grocery stores, restaurants, local farmers markets, the local food system. Hmm. All right. Um, I've, I've heard in, in recent years that um, there is a farmer shortage because the younger people coming up um, on family farms no longer have the interest. You know, they want to move to the big city and, and not do that. Um, so th- that feeds into this next question then of um, talk about why it's more important now than ever for you to be doing what you do. Well, let me set a little bit of context. There's over 91 million acres of farmland that's going to be changing hands in the next five years. Washington State has already lost more than a million acres of farmland over a 15-year time span. The estimated value of land and buildings in our county, Island County, Washington, is over half a million dollars, which is getting far beyond the reach of beginning farmers. The average age of the American farmer is 58 years old, and it's getting older. In Washington, where we are, 65% of farmers are older than 55, and only 5% are younger than 35. So all of this is pointing to the fact that if we want to continue to eat in the future, we need to be increasing the number of people who find this an honorable profession that it is worthy of their intellect and their sharp thinking and their their ability to multitask and come up with innovative solutions. And so more than ever, what young people are hearing is that farming is dirty. It's it's not really for the sharpest among us. It's, it's nothing they're ever going to make a living at. It's basically just a dead end. And it's not true. It is not true. So that's why I think it's more important than ever to be offering these young folks a different perspective that allows them to step into this as a true profession, because it is. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that that the way you described it just now, do you feel that's the way the whole general public feels about it, not just prospective people who could be going into farming? Um, more often than not, I'm afraid it is. Um, And part of that is because, you know, farming is basically relying on this natural system that we're all a part of. But most of us have the luxury of forgetting that we're a part of that natural system. Farmers don't have that luxury. Farmers recognize every day that they rely on the weather and the climate and water and pollinators and clean air and, you know, 
access around their farms. They're, they're keenly tied into those natural systems. And for those of us who don't farm, it's in our separation that we minimize those pieces. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. It does. Um, how you, you mentioned you're in your ninth class and tenth uh-huh. year. How many people um, are in a class each year? Well, we're hoping to grow it, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the past, our average class size has been somewhere around eight. Mm-hmm. Our ideal class size is actually no more than 12 to 15. And that's a little bit uncommon for training programs such as ours. But our philosophy is that when our students graduate, we don't want them leaving saying, well, that was easy. Mm. Uh, We want them to enter this very experiential program, deeply experiential program, and feel the pressures of the work as well as the opportunities. We want them to feel in their bones, not just in their brain cells, what they're going to have to be doing. And we want them to understand totally, fully, and completely, um, that it takes their whole being. Mm. We don't want them to leave thinking, oh, well, you know, as long as I have 15 to 30 people working around me, this farming stuff's easy. I've mm. got this covered. Yeah. How, how long is the program, the curriculum? It's eight months. We mm. start in mid-March. We finish in mid-November. It's five days a week, eight to ten hours a day, um, at least one weekend every month. So it's fully integrated and extremely intense. And where are they doing, where are they experiencing this? On on your farm? Um, On the farm. It's in the Maxwellton Valley, which is a beautiful, historic uh, part of Whidbey Island. And it's on the property of Ron and Ava Schur, who have very generously allowed us to recreate the farm on their property we farm in the middle of what was once a training track for racehorses so our farm is actually oval in shape and you can see it on google maps oh cool Cool. (laughs) so the students are actively they're in the classroom about 10 hours a week but they're in the field the other 30 to 32 hours a week and then they're also visiting other farms not only on whidbey island but in the pacific northwest region we don't have the only model for farming um, so we want to make sure that they know the as much of the fullness as possible before they graduate. It is, I would assume there's quite a stringent application process. There is because um, these folks are going to be working side by side, like I said, 8 to 10 hours a day, 5 days a week plus. And then the student housing also has them sharing rooms. So they're going to be together a lot. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be learning as much as they learn about farming and growing food. They're going to be learning even more about themselves and how to communicate and how to manage situations. And so um, our application process spends a lot of time looking at how people are going to fit together. Mm -hmm. So we spend time talking to each applicant as well as looking at what they've done in the past and how they came to identify that they wanted to farm. And then what scale do they think they want to farm at? Remember we talked earlier about what we're teaching versus homesteading and home gardening and and Iowa scale farm. We want to make sure that what we're offering is really what they're looking for. And so far in these nine classes, has everyone gone on to 
do a farm, or have some people decided it really wasn't for them after all? Um, both. Uh, I'd say about 80% of our graduates are still doing something related to food system. Mm-hmm. Some have purchased their own farms, which is amazing. Some are managing farms for existing farm owners. Some are teaching in school systems so that kids grow up knowing about where their food comes from. Some are organic certifiers in the overall organic food production system. So we feel really strongly that the program is working, the curriculum is working. We also are grateful when people come in, try it, and say, oh, thanks, but no thanks. Hmm. Because we would rather them learn that while they're with us than after they've broken ground and gotten started. For sure. The fact that you um, that you include in the application process why they want to do this and what brought them to this is interesting to me because it seems like, in a way, it not to equate it to medical school, but I'm going to equate it to medical school that you know they they see what the program is that it, it's a major commitment in every way. Um, and so, like going into medicine, you you'd need to know that you've that you really want to do this, and that you've got the tenacity to be able to to go through the whole thing. Um, so, I'm I'm curious what kind what situations of person tend to apply? Is it people who already are in the farming business to a degree, or are they some people who want a complete career change and feel this is the path of their the rest of their life? <laughs> um, with rare exception, our students come to us with very little farming experience, and, and there are a couple of reasons for that composition of our classes. One is that if you've grown up in an agricultural community and you've grown up in an agricultural family, you probably already have almost through osmosis, some of the skills that we're trying to teach new farmers. The unfortunate thing is fewer and fewer people are growing up in ag communities, in ag families. So that's what we're trying, that's the gap we're trying to fill. Mm -hmm. So few of our students come to us with that background. What we're seeing, it's hard to know if it's truly a trend or if it's just a little blip on the radar screen, but what we're seeing is more and more 35 to 40-year-olds who have tried a different career path, thinking that they really wanted to be in tech or finance or medicine. Actually, it's interesting that you brought that up. Um, And that they're not finding the meaning that they want. They're not finding the social contribution that they're looking for. And so they're shifting careers, and they're looking for the fastest, most intense way to go from a more tech or academic background into a more whole person, hands-on, outside and business path. Hmm. That was an awful lot of words I just used. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> They're good words. They were good words. Um, um, as an example, in this year's class, we have a physician's assistant who said that she was tired of treating chronic disease when it was almost too late, and she wanted to see if there was a way to intervene in people's lives before the problem set in. There is a a woman who is trained in GIS systems and archaeology who most recently was working with the light rail system in Phoenix 
identifying, you know, native middens and archaeological sites before the train tracks went through. And she was looking for a way to not look so much to the past, although she loves it, but to look more toward a future and to create a future that she thought was sustainable. Um, so it, it's not just young people who are coming out of high school or out of early college. It's also people who've actually had a life. Mm-hmm. And, and they have evaluated that they're not on the path they wanted to be on. And they're willing to stick their neck out and try a different one. Well, that's wonderful. You yeah. know, I yesterday I um, did a podcast interview, which we'll be um, publishing soon, with um, the, the woman who runs the, the Camino B farm. Uh-huh. Yes. And um, you know, listening to her and then and then talking to you today, I can't help thinking about the connection to the increasing popular popularity of the maker movement. I know here in Colorado, where I live, I don't know how it is everywhere else, but it's huge here, and you know, pe- people are growing urban farms and they are having beehives and they are. Um, making pies from scratch and selling them and you know doing all these things even making their own um, syrups for cocktails and whatnot I mean it's it's just pervasive here and and so I, I can't help thinking about the parallel of of people kind of wanting to get back to the hard earnest work um, that that our grandparents knew for sure Um and and so I, I just wondered if you wanted to comment on kind of that whole maker philosophy and artisan philosophy and how it kind of meanders into farming. So I'm going to ask you to help make sure that I don't meander too far because mm-hmm. there's a lot I want to say about this mm-hmm. and I might lose my train of thought. <laughs> it does happen quite often. Um, I think, personally, this is my opinion, that... When we separate ourselves from the natural world and we instead hitch our our trailer to an economic world, that economic world doesn't see constraints very well. It just sees opportunities for growth. And so often that growth is not creative and diverse. It's, oh, this model works, so everybody should copy it. And you see this a lot, like with restaurants that become chain restaurants, so that by the time it spreads across the country, you can go into any one of those restaurants and order the a menu item, and it tastes pretty much the same, regardless of whether you're in Topeka or in Freeland here on Whidbey Island or in Fort Worth, Texas or, or wherever. Um, and that's okay. I mean, there are utilities in that. But there's also a little bit of boredom in that. And I think we have followed that economic model so far that we now have a generation of people who are going, wait, when I make it, it tastes different. When I make it, it looks different. When I make it, my body feels different. Wait, there's a whole lot of diversity we're missing here. I want to get some of that back. I want to participate in creating a more diverse food system. I want to participate in creating a more creative marketplace. So I think that's part of what's going on. Um, The other thing is as we follow that economic model, it's all about how can we make the most money with the least amount of effort. Mm 
right? Yeah. And somewhere in our human development, we thought that sounded really good. But there is something so satisfying with sweating. There is something so satisfying about getting your hands dirty and taking a project from an idea to a reality and then standing back and saying, I did that. I did that. Mm -hmm. Look at that. I did that. And I don't know if that really answered your question, but but I, I really do think that we have a growing interest again no pun intended farming has so many puns a growth interest in um not only recognizing diversity but valuing it well and yeah i agree with you completely and um you made great points i i think um i think all of that means that it does take a certain kind of person definitely to to work that hard and not necessarily make a ton of money um, and and not take the easy way out takes a certain kind of personality. So uh-huh. w- what would you say off the bat are some of the personality traits of the kind of person who who ends up being successful going through your school? Uh, first and foremost, it's somebody who's taken the time to figure out what their values are. Um it, it takes a personality, a person, a human being that has a bit of humility and a bit of self-confidence and a whole lot of curiosity. And it takes a person who realizes that no matter how important they may think they are, they can't do anything alone, that, that they are part of not only a bigger human system, but a much larger physical natural system Um, if you if you don't do those things you're going to see farming the same as you see the banking industry you're going to see it as a business you're going to see it as a a job you go in you punch a clock you do it and then you expect to get paid for it Mm -hmm. yeah and, and the the natural system thing is interesting too because you could be doing everything right and then there's an early frost or something um, that that just <laughs> shakes it to the core and says, "Nope, <laughs> not going to happen." Yeah. yeah, you know, and that's something that is is frustrating and magical about farming, um, and it's also why, looking through the lens of a farmer, it's it's frustrating to to be farming, to be providing this service to society and i think we need to go back to realizing that farmers are serving our society Uh, this is a service profession and we get frustrated as such service providers when that that we produce is valued in such a minuscule way everybody wants cheap food and they want food accessible all year long every day same quality, same variety all the time. And that's not how the natural world works. And so it ends up with much of the risk in this financial model we've created that falls on the shoulders of the farmer because the distributor isn't worried about a frost. The marketer isn't worried about global climate change and how it's going to impact soil quality and 
the ability of plants to withstand pests. And the, the people who are trying to navigate the transportation system, they're not really thinking about the beauty of a peach that's ripe. They're thinking about, we just want a peach that's not going to rot. But again, I'm probably rambling at this point, but mm-hmm. um, help me out here. No, no, ramble away, <laughs> ramble away. This is fantastic, and, and, you know, I always say in the podcast, I learned so much, and and I, you know, hope our listeners learn a lot, too, because I never want to assume that anybody knows a ton about anything that we cover in our uh-huh. podcasts, and I like to go through life remaining a little bit clueless about everything, because... <laughs> And, and not know a ton about anything because and there's always so much to learn and I'm always curious and I like to think that real food traveler um, listeners and readers because they are travelers um, by nature are curious and want to learn a lot so um, I think the farming industry you know is at our core and so th- I think this is great so you feel free to ramble away <laughs> or not. Um, I, I want to know what a typical day looks like um, for you as as the person you know running this farm and dealing with with this curriculum. <laughs> um, well, I'm, first of all, I'm not encouraging other people to model their day after mine. <laughs> I'll say that right up front. Um, but because you know we've been at this a while, but we're still a relatively young effort, and we're still finding our feet underneath us in terms of the the most impactful model. We are a very small organization. It's two instructors and myself and a part-time bookkeeper, a wonderful nonprofit board, um, and a wonderful community of donors and supporters. But the, the work itself gets done by the two farm instructors who are working with the students and then myself. And I do the marketing and the fundraising and the outreach and the social media and the marketing. And I trace down people who are going to do the repairs to the student house when there's a leak under the sink. And, you know, I'm the first to respond if a windstorm comes up and everybody's on a field trip and I need to go make sure the hoop houses aren't blown away. Mm-hmm. Um, so my days typically run from about 5 a.m. to 6 or 7 p.m., just trying to keep up with the admin as well as the business as well as the community pieces. Mm-hmm. And you spoke to your audience, the audience for this podcast being people who love to travel and eat. I've got to say, I spend a lot of my outreach time trying to find just those people because the people who enjoy food and the people who enjoy preparing food are the people we need to be working hand-in-hand with to change this conversation around how our food is grown. So a lot of my outreach is trying to find such people. And and do you necessarily mean find such people to to become students? Or how, how else, and this leads right into my next question, how else can people become involved if they want to? Um, it's partially to create students, but not not in a large way. We have had students who have either come from our program and gone on to a culinary program or vice versa. So I love that connection. But 
what I meant by reaching out to people such as your listeners is because you understand the power of the palate as well as the power of the nutrition that shows up on that plate, um, your adversaries, not adversaries, advocates, that's the opposite, <laughs> um, your advocates for what we are trying to share with the world. You're, you are helping us shine a light on the power of food and the place of food, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the place of food for us as a species in this natural world. Mm-hmm. That's what I meant by the importance of your audience. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and our, tra- our readers travel all over the world, so this applies all over the world. This isn't just a United States thing that you're talking about. Absolutely not. You know, life has always been a changing force, right? Mm-hmm. It, it never stays still. It, systems don't get static. They're always changing. But right now, um, for those folks who haven't been paying attention, <laughs> we're facing significant changes with our weather, with our climate, Within social justice, within economic models, we're looking at change in policy shifts, global policy shifts. We're looking at political undercurrents that, that track all over the world. We're looking at technological shifts. We're looking at changes in our distribution networks. We're looking at changes in, in fashion and art and palette and it's incredible. It's it's everything's changing. So the more people travel, the more people open their eyes, the more questions they ask, and the more new things that they try, the more feedback we get as humans into how we're going to navigate all this change. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's not just Whidbey Island. It's not just the Pacific Northwest. It's not just Washington State. It's not just the U.S. Mm-hmm. We're talking planet, people. <laughs> Beautifully put, beautifully put. So if, if somebody is not um, part of Organic Farm School as a student, like can the general public come and visit you and you know, see what you do or, or what? Absolutely. We love visitors. Uh, we love sharing what we're doing. Um, <laughs> I will say um, that the farm on which we work is beautiful, and you can see that racetrack from a Google sky shot um but the driveway to get to us is a single lane driveway so we simply ask that people connect with us first so that we can do a little traffic control (laughs) we don't want you running into each other um and the easiest way to do that is first go to our website so you have a sense of what we're doing and that's just www.organicfarmschool.org you can sign up for our newsletter there and then if you're interested in a visit we're going to be interested in having you visit. So you can just drop me an email, and I'm happy to share that here. Is that an appropriate time? Sure. Uh, the easiest way is just Judy, that's me, Judy, at organicfarmschool.org. And I say email because we do live on an island, and in spite of the fact that it is a very short ferry ride over to the mainland and a very short, well, can be long, but mileage-wise, uh, trip to Seattle, um, our cell phone coverage here is really spotty, and we're in a valley. So trying to catch me on my cell phone is, is quite an adventure in technology. So best to stick with the email. Okay. So I, I've got this very esoteric question for you for the last question. <laughs> Let's imagine that we can see in the future 10 years, say, uh-huh. and 
the Organic Farm School is doing exactly what you envisioned it would do, what is it, what does that look like? Um, the first tangible thing is that we have learned enough about what we're doing that there are a few more people on my staff. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is that there are vibrant groups, diverse groups of students that are moving through the program. And as they do so, they are making the program better as they graduate and move on. Uh, the third is that we are in the midst of even more collaboration with other community organizations so that collectively, not just us, we're getting back to that diversity piece, collectively we're able to layer in education for those home gardeners and those homesteaders and those larger scale farmers in addition to the, the sweet spot we're trying to hit. Mm-hmm. And then finally that because of this work that will continue beyond this 10-year, imaginary 10-year mark, that by that point in time, we're beginning to see the deeper impact on our local and regional food systems. We're actually seeing change beyond, oh, yes, I shop at the farmer's market, that we're, we're seeing people more deeply appreciate their food and the people who grow it. That's what I would like to see in 10 years. That's beautiful. Wonderfully said. Well, Judy Feldman of the Organic Farm School, this has been a real pleasure for me, and I hope for our uh, podcast listeners, too, and realfoodtraveler.com readers. Um, this is important stuff, really important stuff, and and it's wonderful what you're doing, and I'm really glad a garbage truck did not go by. We. <laughs> So am I, and I'm even glad that the seagulls kind of kept their voices low. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little seagull noise at the beach during a podcast is not such a bad thing. But uh, oh, That's right, and oh, my Audubon friends would quickly correct me. They're not seagulls, they're gulls. Oh, they're that's right. Gulls. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, thank you again for, for joining us today and for your time and all this really wonderful information and, and great reminders about really, really basic things that we lose sight of every day in this convenience-based world. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. It has been for me as well. Thank you for the opportunity and come see me. Okay. Oh, yeah. And, and as I always say, Real Food Traveler podcast listeners and readers, when you go, and I say when, not if, be sure you let Judy know that you heard about her and in, in the program here on, on realfoodtraveler.com. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.